I'm John Aslan, and this is This Week in APA. We're back again for installment two of the history of APA, according to Fritz Light. I'm John Aslan, your podcast host. And just like last time, the current president of the APA Game Company, John Hurston, is with us. John, how are you? Good, John. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. And, of course, our special guest who is talking about his days as the president of the APA Game Company, Fritz Light. Fritz, welcome to you. Happy New Year to you, too, as well. Thank you. Same to you. It's good to be back again, John. Great. Can't wait to dig into episode two. Uh, We left off last time with you being hired on by Dick Seitz uh, in 1972 after you'd gotten out of the Army. You're a college graduate. Uh, You go four years uh, in Vietnam, and then you come back, and Dick wants you to be his heir apparent. Uh, because he has some family connections to you, and he brings you in for an interview. You're hired right away. Um, so let's let's start right there. You you come to the company. It's a small company. Uh, you started at Johnson and Johnson when you uh, uh, were in college, I believe, as an intern of, of some sort. And uh, you 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 latch onto this small company because you know that the opportunities may be bigger down the road. Talk about uh, your, your, first, your first six months, let's say, uh, at the Apple Game Company. I will. Two small corrections first, though. I was not in Vietnam for four years. I was only in Vietnam for about six months, so let's not overstate oh, that. Oh, well done. And Johnson, Johnson & Johnson was actually my first job as a management trainee out of college. Okay. So anyway, moving along to 1972, I would say the uh, the first six months went uh, uh, extremely well. Um, I would say that uh, Dick Seitz was not uh, expecting all that much. And I don't mean this uh, to be taken in a negative way, but I don't think he expected that... Uh, much of what he did could be taken over quickly by someone else. Uh, Mm -hmm. I was, uh, the one frustration in the early days was I was always uh, pushing him for more work. Uh, uh, he had, uh, he had said that he wanted out, but, uh, and it was true that he wanted out of certain things that he was doing, but there were certain other things that he wanted to hang on to. Right. But uh, uh, other than that, we, we, we got along beautifully. I was uh, very pleased to have uh, made the decision that I made and uh, very, very comfortable quickly in the job. So so basically, I, I mean, kind of what I'm getting out of that is uh, he had hired John to kind of uh, groom somebody to take over his job. But, man, you were a go-getter. I mean, you, you, you're out of college. You, you, you were in the Army. You had some experience and some maturity. And maybe you hit him a little too hard 
coming right at him like, hey, I'm not ready to give it this company yet, uh, fella. <laughs> give me a little bit of room. Think I think there was, was I think there was some of that. I think you may have stated a, a little too a little too forcefully. But uh, yeah, he was. Uh, uh, there were things that he wasn't uh, that he wasn't ready to give up, and he certainly wanted to continue to be the uh, the face of the company, which is fine with me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we talked a little bit about uh, last week when you came to the company again. Very very small company. Uh, uh, you just have a, a couple employees, uh, um, uh, Vera Lincoln and Ski Car, who had been there a while. How many other people were involved in the day-to-day operation, if any, uh, when you arrived there? Oh, yes. There were probably, I believe there were eight or nine full-time employees when I was hired. That's close anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they were doing probably, what, packaging and... Uh, and uh, printing did they kind of go pick things up and bring yeah, them back? Or, or, yeah, order order taking, which in yeah. those days a mail order company was literally via the mail. Right, right. And, uh, and go ahead, John. Fritz, did they uh, back in the day the card sets were you know were into the already in the team envelopes? Did they do that also, or was that done by the printer? That was done by the printer in the very oh. early in the very early days. It was not, but by the time I got there, that was a, that was a commercial process done by the printer. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you know, again, it's still a small group uh, of people you're working with. Um, sure. Let me let, let me ask you a little bit more about Dick Sites because I think a lot of us we only know Dick through mythology, through what stories that we are told. Um, did he ever talk with you about how he started the company? You know, what, did he talk about uh, a Clip Van Beek and, and how, you know, it started with National Pastime that he played? And then the game is basically based on that. Did he ever broach that subject with you? Uh, not until post-convention, I think, 1975, when uh, Mr. Van Beek attention, uh, attended and uh, – uh, kind of uh, introduced himself to me and said he had something to show to me, which turned out to be the national pastime game. That was, that was the first I'd heard of it. So that wasn't, I couldn't say that was something that uh, uh, Dick Seitz was eager to have uh, made public or even uh, uh, <laughs> relatively private. <laughs> well, I went back and I, 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 probably a couple of years ago now, I interviewed Larry Van Beek, Cliff's son, uh, about his father coming up with the idea uh, uh, of the game National Pastime, which APA is based on. And he did talk about that his father went to a convention, um, and, and I think he, he went there through Pete Simonelli, who he is now good friends with uh, and, and has been since those, since those days. Um, and you're exactly right. Dick didn't want to have anything to do with him. Larry said his dad went there just to, he realized that the game was based on what he had done. And he wanted to give him some ideas of, you know, maybe improve the game, little nuances. And Dick didn't want to meet with him, didn't want to say anything to him. So um, when you found out about National Pastime, did you approach Dick about that at any time? Uh, yes, of course. But uh, uh the first day back, I do recall that before I approached him, uh, 
uh, he came to my office. Uh, I typically arrived there earlier than he did, and he was there very early and uh, uh, gave me the background, I would say, kind of uh, sheepishly might be the, uh, the best word to use. Um, but uh, uh, I don't, I don't, I didn't know how uh, Mr. Van B got to that convention. I didn't know who invited him or who made him aware of it. Uh, and I can't recall much about my conversation with him, but uh, it was uh, it was fairly brief and certainly uh, um, genial. Uh, he seemed like a very very nice man. Uh, but that was that was my first inkling that uh, uh, that Afro hadn't been uh, uh, developed uh, entirely through the uh, initiative and the genius of Dick Sites. Yeah, now, real. now Fritz, when you went to talk to Van Beek. Did you know what he was going to tell you? No, I had no you idea. Had, he took me, you had took no me, warning at all. No, he took he took me to his hotel room, and I thought he was just a fan, and I was trying to be uh, courteous and uh, uh, cooperative. And uh, he said, "I'd like to you come to my hotel room, and I'd like to show you something." So I agreed to do that, and uh, there he either laid out his game or or had it uh, laid out to begin with. I don't remember that. Hmm. I've had women ask me to come to the hotel room and show me something, but that would have been a whole different uh, subject. I, mean, I think that's one I ought to avoid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they want they wanted your wallet, asshole. They already put something in your drink. I'm not going to touch this. I didn't think that, I didn't think that would fly, but a little levity, you know, occasionally. Does. Well, but you know, you think about today, you would never do that. No, you're exactly right. Really, which is what I was thinking was like, wait a minute, some dude I don't know wants me to go to the hotel, gonna knock me over the head and take my wallet. I I know what you mean, but uh, but yeah, I and, and like I said, I went back and I listened to that interview today with Larry Van Beek, and uh, uh, you know he said that his he and his family were totally oblivious to his dad coming up with this game. Now he said that his mother knew about it briefly, but. You know, the game was only out for one year. Right, then, that, that I knew, or that I was told anyway and believed it to be true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, so, Larry told us that his only memory is his dad had a 10 key, and he would mm -hmm. work on the cards at the kitchen table after dinner. And that's in and that's in your office, is, is it not? Yeah, it's here at the office. Yeah, yeah, yeah the piece of memorabilia right there. Um, it, it, Fritz, let me ask you this. Um, as you... Uh, became more acclimated into the company and and got a little more comfortable with your job. Did you uh, ever, or even you know, uh, Skeet and, and Veril, did you guys ever get involved in how the cards were made or the the algorithms that uh, were built, or did you just leave that up to Dick, or was Dick even willing to let you guys know that? Well, uh, I started making the baseball cards the first year I was there, and oh, he, gave me, he gave me all the uh, the guidelines. And uh, obviously, there was some subjectivity. And uh, the first, let's say, fifty cards or so that I made, he reviewed and uh, um, criticized some of the number placements. I, I don't think there was anything. As I recall, I don't think there was anything that was uh, uh, objected to except the uh, placement of some of the numbers. And uh, that uh, 
I hadn't played the game for close to a decade, and the uh, the traditions of number placement had changed a bit over the course of that time, mm-hmm. and uh, that was uh, that was most of what I remember. And uh, he, I, I made the cards, I guess, for let's see, probably close to twenty years, and. Uh, the only comments he ever made were comments he got from from fans uh, <laughs> saying you're uh, uh, and I'm I'm uh, I'm making this up, but saying you're uh, you're too tough on the shortstops or mm-hmm. you're uh, uh, you're too liberal with the second baseman or something like that 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 he had heard somewhere. But he he basically turned it over to me and uh, didn't really offer any criticism at all after I'd gotten started. Fritz, yeah. who, who selected the players in the set? You? Me. Okay. With I, I think with occasional help from Skeet. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah. So so a little bit of a collaboration uh, between uh, the guys uh, that were there. Uh, Vera Lincoln was he basically the guy who was the face of the counter when you walked in? What other kind of jobs did he do when he when, when he was there? Everybody, except for Dick and, and me, everybody else did everything uh, mm-hmm. from, from, well, I, I should, I should amend that. Uh, I think Skeet was the only one who processed mail. And I even helped him with that at very, very busy times of year. And the busiest time we ever had with mail was the year that he, uh, the master game came out, which I think was 1976. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was just an uh, there was almost more mail than you could fit in an office. Um, hard to imagine that at one time you actually did this by did mail. by mail, mail right? <laughs> um, well, uh, index cards for employees' records. I mean, that's just mind-boggling. I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. I said those handwritten index cards with you know for each customer and what they purchased. Oh, th- those. The only handwritten cards might have been left over from 1951. They were typed with man- <laughs> oh, okay. manual typewriters, but they were typed. And uh, I-, I was starting to say everybody else did most of everything, including uh, tracking customer orders, including recording them, including packing them. Uh, some of the uh, employees beyond Skeet and Verl did not get involved in the, uh, uh, in the record keeping, but most did. And uh, it was just what what any of them did at a particular time of year depended largely on how busy we were uh, with the mail and later on the telephone uh, at that time of year. Uh, tell us a little bit about the building that the game company was in on uh, Millersville Road, I believe, right? Well, uh the building was uh, probably five or six times larger than we needed. Um, it allowed us to store an enormous amount of inventory, and uh, that uh, that was probably too much of a luxury. Uh, and I I contributed to that as a result of the uh, the space that we had. We and the and the cost of uh, the cost of ordering a, a small additional printing of cards in those days mm-hmm. uh, being prohibitive, we always overordered. And I w- I was the one after the first year or so who decided what we would order based on based on prior years' orders and just based on feel. If you had to, 
if you had exceptionally good pennant races, that helped. If you would have had somebody uh, uh, in my day hit 70 home runs, that would have helped. Uh, so it was largely done by feel, uh, and mostly my feel. But uh, uh, we overordered, which is I'm not I'm not aware if there's still old seasons cards left over from original printings. John, are there? Yeah. Uh, no. Uh, when we moved from Lancaster, uh, we took two cases of every season, except for the two most recent seasons, and the rest of it was landfilled. I think Furl and Skeet, you know, passed some out to some of the longtime customers that were there. But I mean, it, we had a sale beforehand because it was easier to move money than cards. Is and, that right? Uh, yeah, I thought so. Uh, but no, we, we, because again, I have less warehouse space. Well, you've seen it than uh, you guys had at Lancaster. And, uh, you know, we moved ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so no, that was all landfilled. Yeah, I'm not surprised, but there were, there were an awful lot of uh, leftover cards. And that was uh, uh, more my fault than it was anyone else's. Yeah. So, and there was like how many floors to that building were there? Three, three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a big building, big building, and yeah, uh, it was. I think it was twenty-two thousand square feet. And it yeah, was more than was required, and uh, uh, heavier on the overhead than it needed to be. Yeah, uh, Fritz, where was your office? Uh, if you uh, came up the stairs from the garages. Mm-hmm. Mine was the first office on the left, and then Dick's was uh, the next one over, and then I eventually moved there after I took over. So, so if, if you're doing all the the card work, um, what exactly is is Dick's job? Obviously, he oversees the whole operation, but what specifically was he doing uh, in the game company? As time went on. Uh, He really didn't do a whole lot except pay the bills. Mm-hmm. He monitored the bank account, and he personally paid the bills. Uh, he did nearly all of that, and I, I only did that if he was ill, which didn't happen very frequently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, I would consult with him on, on uh, major issues, new product developments or so forth, changes to major changes to the football game, I recall, in the 80s. Uh, uh I didn't. Uh, first of all, he had the uh, he had the right to be involved in all of that, and furthermore, sure. uh, he was a. Uh, although I made changes to games, and I think uh, more often than not, useful and sometimes necessary changes, uh, I never wanted to depart from the feel of the games, uh, because although he didn't initially develop national pastime, obviously. Uh, and had a uh, a model to work from when he developed that by baseball. Uh, mm-hmm. The games were great games. The football game was a great game. And uh, I didn't want to uh, uh, inadvertently lose something that uh, that made the game attractive to uh, the people who played it and and the people who might buy it in the future. he w- he was a he was a more um, he was a much more imaginative and creative person than I am. Huh. Okay. I, yeah. And, and I think that it is even to today is the beauty of the game is the feel that you have. And, you know, a lot of people would think, well, but over the years there had to be some improvements and you, 
But, you know, and you said it perfectly, making changes would possibly and most likely change the actual feel of the game. And I think you talk to anybody who has played APA, and if you talk to the same amount of people that play uh, Stratomatic, they're going to have two different uh, feelings about the games. The APA folks will say, you feel like you're part of the game. And the Stratomatic guys might say something like, well, the, the, the statistics are more accurate or we get more be- better feel for pitchers and hitters or, or whatever their, their reason is. But changing the feel of APA would have really, uh, I think, destroyed the product. And speaking privately to Hal Richmond once, uh, my opinion was that uh, both games were excellent games and whichever game you happened upon first and started to play was likely to hook you and you were going to be mm-hmm. unlikely yep. to switch to the other. And Hal, Hal agreed with that 100%. So if we were wrong, we were both wrong about that. And over the years, uh, uh, Fritz, how, how, were you, I wouldn't say inundated, but were you uh, approached by whoever to say, uh, and I guess customers as well, saying, hey, you can improve the game if you do this and you can improve the game if you do that. Uh, was the improvement uh, molecules out there from the outside in or did anybody within the system throw a few things out that might be be improvements? Certainly, we got useful suggestions from fans. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of them you had to take with a grain of salt because uh, even after the master game came out in baseball, if you'd have implemented every single uh, uh, possible suggestion to the game, you might have had a game that was more accurate, but you might have had a game that took 25 hours to play. Mm. Yeah. Um, kind of like, <laughs> like uh, the basketball. Kind of like basketball. <laughs> my my dad my dad was very handy. Uh, my dad was a pastor, but he loved to do light carpentry and that kind of thing. And uh, you could rely him to do on any rely on him to do any job perfectly. Uh, but uh, if you wanted it in your own lifetime, you might not get it. So you know, there's there was there was always. In APA, there was always realism versus playability, and uh, you had to strike, try to strike the right balance between the two. Well, you know, and that's something, and John, you probably can can attest to this, that uh, there are a lot of people. Now, I, I, when I first started playing APA, I played the basic game, but quite quickly moved on to the master game, and I love the master game. I just think it's it's a more realistically uh, a play game. The basic game's great, and if you want speed and get get done quick and you get good results, but I love the master game, but you'll hear time and time again people out there, when you mention the master game, oh, I don't want to do all those calculations. I just want to play the game, roll the dice, read the card, in fact, probably memorize what's on the card and on the boards. I just want that. So I, I can understand that um, improvements that would uh, make the game more complicated. We're probably have to be thought long and hard. When was the decision to do the master game? Uh, and if you know this, uh, to, to have that as part of the Apple baseball world. The first major departure we made from tradition was doing the 1949 baseball season. I believe that was in 1974 following the first convention. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, uh, kind of an outgrowth of the convention for people demanding old seasons, or at least desiring old seasons. Right. 
then we did uh, the 1930 season, I believe in 1975, during which there was a convention, uh, the convention at which I met Mr. Van Beek, I believe. And there was so much lobbying for more complexity to the game uh, that uh, Dick decided, and this, this was his decision, I had some input, but this was his decision, that mm -hmm. we, we would do a master game, which he did uh, nearly all of himself. Um, I had a, a little bit of input, but uh, that was nearly all his. And in fact, I, uh, if I can digress, I had the, uh, the large sheets on which he actually wrote the uh, uh, results for the master game, and I had those until I left my last job, at which they were stored in a box uh, in the racking in the uh, warehouse. And when the when we sold the company, uh, the new people came in, threw all that stuff out uh. before I before I got a chance to remove it. But in any case, he did that himself. And uh, I believe that uh, he had, I know he had it in the back of his mind to do it someday because he talked about it in passing, but I, I believe it was a 1975 convention, which really drove it to reality and uh, persuaded him to uh, put it together so that we had it ready by the beginning of 1976. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was, uh, oh, go ahead, John. Uh, Fritz, was there any thought to putting the master symbols on the card? at that time instead of selling them separately there was there was thought yes uh and the uh, uh the decision was that uh, and it was dick's decision but i agreed with it that we didn't want to clutter the cards um that was that was the uh, feeling we had at the time okay. can i ask you one other question going back a little bit um <clears throat> i had this question when i did a saber zoom thing a while back and somebody asked me what is more important playability or realism and how would you answer that we had uh, a fundamental training class in the army in ocs at which they asked which is more important the men or the mission uh and I answered, obviously, it was the mission, because if there if there weren't a mission, you uh, you wouldn't need any men and we could all go home. Uh, so my answer would be playability. Uh, if nobody's going to play it, it doesn't matter how realistic it is. Mm -hmm. So you need the realism to sell it. But if it's not playable, uh, you have a, a useless product. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Yeah, that that's that's a really good answer. I never really thought of it in those terms, but you but but you're right. Uh, without the playability, there's nobody to play it. And I now to me, when when you asked that question, John, I thought I thought of the thing that I love about it is the realism. At least that's what first came to my head, and that the statistics prove so true. And you'll have your outliers, which makes the game even more fun to play if you're doing replays and that and that type of thing, uh, or even leagues. But uh, but, you know, when you think about it, it really is the playability because uh, if it was so tedious, and I think a lot of people got this from the basketball game, doesn't matter how great of a game it is as far as statistics turning out correctly, you're never going to get through the games anyway to figure it out. So, yeah, that, that it, a great answer and uh, something that made me think. 
uh, about how I feel about the game. Now, um, when, I, when I was a kid, uh, yeah. and I, I uh, introduced the game to other kids, uh, you could teach somebody to play it in five minutes. I mean, from mm-hmm. age age nine or ten on up, uh, there might be uh, there might be a few idiosyncrasies that they didn't fully grasp, but you could teach somebody to play it in five minutes. Yeah. Well, sure. I mean, the the the, the basic game is that you roll the dice, you look at the card, you read the board. Yep. There's 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 your result. Um, and, and, you know, there may be a, a couple other things that you have to maybe look at and you got to get your fielding and whatnot, but yeah, I mean, it is an extremely easy game. When I first learned how to play the game and I was in my thirties at, at that time, but I'd played a game similar to that, uh, when I was in my early teens, but it was so easy to pick up. And I think because of that, I said, let me see what this master game is like. And I love numbers and I love the adding and subtracting part of it. So for me, the the added realism to it was not uh, a, a, the the burden was not having to take more time to play it and to figure it out. It was just it was a game that I I uh, uh, preferred o- over the basic game. Um, go ahead, John. Fritz, since we're in the midst here of shipping the twenty two card sets and taking orders, back in the day. You know, the mailing would come out uh, late January, you know, as one of the three signs of baseball coming, spring coming, the ABBA mailing, Street and Smith on the newsstand, and then series one of the tops cards. Who wrote all those mater- all those uh, letter mailings? Uh, after I was hired, I did. Okay. Really? All, huh. Almost all of them anyway. And how long did that take you to do? When did you start doing that? Uh, well, you're asking a lot of my memory. Um, <laughs> I would say... Well, like after the first of the year, or...? No, no, no. We, talking about baseball and the primary mailing, which was always at the beginning of the year, mm-hmm. um, I would start writing that stuff which generally wasn't that big a task because you were just overhauling what you did from the prior year. Uh, we had the good fortune at APRA to do the same thing for decades, and it worked for decades. Uh, but anyway, that's I would start that as soon as the baseball season was over. And okay. uh, at that point, you knew what, uh, uh, what hooks you could use in the advertising depending on what, what had happened during the year. Uh, those things were then printed uh which was a much bigger process in those days than it is now but we had i think at the peak we were we were printing about 150,000 pieces uh of, of of everything that went into those envelopes uh the printing had to be done by uh i'm gonna say about the first of november mm-hmm. in the in the really old days all those uh, all those envelopes were hand stuffed. If you had six enclosures, you had a human mm-hmm. gathering those six enclosures and stuffing them into an envelope. Furthermore, before we started using a, a uh, uh, before we got the names entered into a computer, and that was that was a. <laughs> you, you should ask me more about that. How that developed? Uh, <laughs> probably in 1983, I'm going to say was the first time we uh, we generated. Uh, we had computer-generated uh, uh, address labels, 
prior to that, we had somebody come in, people come in twice a year to type Dupla sticker labels to put on wow. the envelopes. Uh, <laughs> so by, by the time all of those jobs were done, you were at the first of the year already, and that was when we sent the mailing out. Although the cards typically weren't ready until sometime between the 20th of January and the 1st of February. Hmm. Uh, and what who select, who select, I'm sorry, John. Who selected the sample cards? Uh, after I was employed, I would say I selected them, but I always went over that with Dick. Uh, and once okay. or twice, once or twice, uh, I was overruled. And did you have any specific criteria, like, you know, most recognized player or something like that? Most popular player? The most, the most player, the player most likely to generate a response. And when I first started, it was, uh, it was clearly Johnny Bench. Ah, um, okay. yeah, yeah, that would be well. And, and again, I mean, you're looking at name recognition. I think that's John, what you're, what you're uh, getting at, but, uh, uh, you know, when you're looking, if, if you would say, well, I'd, I'd get the most unusual card. Well, somebody who has not played the game uh, might look at it and say, I don't know what all this means. And, and it's Joe Schmo. Uh, you know, it, it, something that would probably hit them harder would be guys like uh, Johnny Bench, at least in that era, uh, you know, or, or players of that ilk, the Hall of Fame guys. And uh, uh, the, but that that was the key. And you hear that all the time is that. When people read those magazines and articles and then, or magazines and they saw those advertisements, that really just drew them in. And, and to be able to come up with the template that would do that, that's quite an accomplishment. Uh, Fritz, did you write the, the ad copy? Yes. Okay. All right. And then one last question. Tell us about the transition. To the new machinery. Uh, Dick was not one who uh, quickly embraced <laughs> uh, digital technology. Um, he thought computers was a fad. <laughs> no, he didn't. He didn't think computers were a fad. He thought computer games were a fad. Ah, that's it. Right. He didn't right, think right. computers yeah. were a fad, but he wasn't. Uh, he wasn't convinced we were prepared to use them. And uh, up front. It was a, uh, a very large expense in, I think it was 1983, we got, well, I didn't know anything about computers when I started the shop for them either. Uh, and uh, I, I started by going to a radio shack and telling a guy I wanted uh, a, uh, a system that would, uh, uh, on which we could retain 150,000 names and eventually add uh, purchase records to them. And his response at Radio Shack was, I think you might need a disk drive. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the days when they, were, they were, when they were transitioning from, what, what were the originals? Eight inches, which are really floppy, to five yeah. and a quarters. Yeah. Uh, eventually yeah. I found someone who, uh, locally in Lancaster, who did understand or was, uh, came to understand what I wanted and uh, said he could write a custom program for it. And we bought four Morrow, M-O-R-O-W, uh, MD-11. And the 11 was for an 11 megabyte hard drive, which was the largest you could find at that time. Hmm. Four hard drives uh, on those, uh, four, a hard drive on each of the four machines. And uh, uh, 
So I bought the CPM system, which I didn't know was going to be outdated in a couple of years, and uh, hired somebody to do a custom program, having no idea how difficult that was and what glitches there were about uh, you were bound to encounter. And uh, you said they'll all be ready by the first of the year. And I said, good. So I thought we'd just start doing everything at the first of the year using these new computers. And as a matter of fact, miraculously, we did. There were a couple software glitches, but on the whole, the software was beautifully written, did exactly what it was supposed to do, and it was ingenious for its time. We needed the four hard drives to accommodate all the customers. And at that point, we didn't even have customer records. We didn't have space for that. Mm -hmm. He developed uh, what he called uh, an extraction and insertion wasn't the word he used. But that was what it amounted to. Every Friday afternoon, uh, either Skeet or Verl or maybe somebody else was trained to do it, would insert a floppy disk and start the extraction program. The way the four machines were set up was by zip code. So say machine A had the zip code 000 through 199. Uh, people move, of course. They change their addresses every right. week it would extract from a particular machine the addresses which did not belong there any longer. And uh, then you inserted uh, all your four disks, which had been taken from the four machines uh, in kind of a daisy chain back into the uh, other disk. And those disks sucked out all the names which now belonged on that machine uh, because of their new zip codes. It, for, for the time, it was ingenious. For the time, yeah. The, exactly. guy's name, the guy's name was Ron Uick. He was Swiss. And uh, uh, this was accomplished with a minimum of difficulty, which was a good thing because Dick wouldn't have tolerated a whole lot of, <laughs> right. a lot of problems. Fritz, who yeah. was more technically savvy, rural skeet or you? Uh, well, starting out, I think we were all tied at zero. <laughs> now who would never uh, advance beyond zero by the time by the time we had the computers installed i i was the only one who was at all knowledgeable but to use the word knowledgeable would be an exaggeration uh it, it, it turned out that i knew what i needed to know which was uh surprising in itself but it was uh, uh, it was a godsend to come across Ron Uick, who did something that I had no idea how complex it was, and got it done on time and uh, accurately. So we didn't we didn't suffer any uh, any uh, uh, real big hiccups there. Now, what year? What? Now he 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 ignored the question. Though. <laughs> Go ahead, John. No. I, I didn't ignore it. I, I certainly forgot it. But he, didn't ignore it. <laughs> he hey, in, in today's terminology, he deflected it. He, he just was this the question about who was most knowledgeable? Yeah. yeah, yeah no, we, we, Skeet, nobody, nobody really knew anything except for me. Uh, and uh, Ron Hewitt came in, and uh, uh, one Monday morning. And took, uh, I'm going to say, about two hours. And we had every, everybody there who was going to touch the machines. And he taught everyone how to use it, uh, including me, because there were some things I didn't know. Uh, he, was, uh, he was smart enough to teach only what, uh, what people needed to do. They didn't need to mm -hmm. know any whys or wherefores. Uh, they just needed to know how it worked and what they needed to do to, uh, to enter a new person, to delete a person, 
to uh, and to use this extraction and this extraction and insertion program that he ingeniously developed, so people would be able to be found in the right zip code grouping. Uh, no, so, no Skeet, I think I'm sure Skeet would tell you he knew nothing when it started, uh, and it was true of everybody in the company except me. And go back a year before when I started to do my research, I'd done nothing. I'd known nothing either, as as evidenced by my radio check story. <laughs> right. you know, now, do you remember? Explain to do, our, our younger listeners uh, what Radio Shack was. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> radio Shack had a machine called the Trash Eighty, actually the TRS Eighty, which was uh, along with a Commodore and, uh, um, gee, there was one other one that was competitive. I can't remember what it was. Those were the uh, precursors of the Apple II. Uh, mm -hmm. The uh, the first machine that was really designed for the uh, uh, the individual consumer. And uh, I, I went to Radio Shack because I didn't know where else to go. Mm -hmm. There were all kinds of mom and pop, or in many cases, just pop operations of people who knew something about IT, although it wasn't even called IT then, uh, at least I didn't know the term, who had small businesses. And I went to a number of those as time went by. I probably went to a dozen different places uh, trying to learn and trying to find someone who could do uh, what I needed done at a price within my budget. And uh, uh, that was the way I happened upon Ron Uick. And uh, he was a... Uh, as I said, he was. Uh, I was very fortunate to find him. Do you remember exactly what year that that was? I believe we first. You, I believe we got the computers in at the beginning of '84. Okay. And used right. them for the first mailing. Then I, I'm sure I'm right, give or take a year. Yeah. And uh, Dick was uh, Dick was still skeptical when we got them in, but uh, when I showed him the first run uh, of mailing labels. Uh, and said, here, this thing grinds out 2,000 mailing labels in one hour or whatever it was in those days. Uh, mm -hmm. he, was, he was sold. Yeah. I had to just make the job so much easier. And, but again, it is. It's a learning curve that you have to learn an absolutely new technology. Uh, but when it, when it works, boy, it, it can really make things much, much simpler uh, for a company like that. Um, John, at the same I, I'm sorry. No, at, the go same, ahead. at the same time, we had people uh, browbeating us about uh, making a software version of the uh, of the games, and especially of the baseball game. And uh, we were, I was learning a little bit through that. Dick was Dick was more and more skeptical about that. And what <laughs> what swung what swung him over were were three things. Number one, uh, there was a fan. Uh, who approached us with someone else whose name was unknown at the time uh, who wanted to uh, be involved in coding the game, the baseball game. The other man was John Sununu, who shortly after that became the governor of New Hampshire and was George H.W. Bush's chief of, chief of staff subsequent mm -hmm. to that. He also wrote code, and he wanted to be involved. He was not, but that... After that meeting, Dick took it a little more seriously. Well, the, the I, second, I, go ahead. The second was when Random House came calling. Mm -hmm. uh, Random House really got uh, our attention in a hurry, including his. 
Well, I, I kind of want to hold off on that, then. That's what's going to be our next topic for okay, our, fine. our next podcast, because I think there's a lot to unpack when we get to there. But, uh, uh, yeah, I kind of wanted to get up through your beginning at the company and probably through the mid-'80s when things started to shift as far as technology goes. And uh, we're getting close to uh, 1990 when that all kind of explodes in and of itself. But I tell you what, I, I'm fascinated with with this conversation. I mean, there are things that, and when you were at the convention, I learned a lot of things, but uh, these little chats that we're having uh, just fill in some of the blank spots. And uh, John, anything else you want to add before we. uh, Yeah, I got a couple questions still. Uh, Fritz, initially it was 20 players and then the roster increased. Whose decision was that? I mean, I, I suppose Dick started with the 20, right? He's, yeah, he, he had 20 all along, and he started the what were called the XBs in those days mm-hmm. uh, long long before I got there, and it was four extra cards. Uh, I persuaded him to go to six extra cards because I said the way, the way players were being used, uh, we needed a couple more, and furthermore, people would be happy to pay for it, which they were. Um, and I don't think we, in the printed versions, I don't think we ever went beyond 26 per team. Uh, and we began to do 25 for the old seasons that we were doing, mm-hmm. obviously without an, without an XP set, just 25 regular cards. I think that's how we kept it for years. Uh, who, what was the conversation or the process like to decide to reissue seasons that had already been issued? You know, I can't remember how we decided to do the first one, which was 1950. Uh, he, uh, I believe, he had, he had stated in the past that he wasn't going to uh, reissue those seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, my point was that there was a great demand for them, that there were only basically collectors who had some of those sets and not people who actually wanted to play the games. And I said, if they're completely recalculated according to uh, the methods we use today, I wouldn't call it a reissue. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he didn't agree with me for a period of time, but eventually, uh, eventually he, he did and uh, wanted to do, ni- do 1950 first. And then it was just, uh, I would uh, I would come to him at some point during the prior year and say, here's what I think uh, would be the most attractive seasons to issue next year. And uh, he would either go along, which if he didn't do in every case, he did in almost every case. But he might have had a counter a counter suggestion once or twice. Now, how did you find the information to make that decision? I mean, it's not like the Internet today was sports reference. Uh you know, where you, you get that information for those older seasons. Uh, was it just the sporting news guides or reach guides or uh, what did you do? Yeah, we had, we had the guides for most seasons, if not all seasons. And there were all, all, always new uh, printed encyclopedias being issued. Uh, and as far as demand goes, if you were touching on that, uh, the, uh, I said I would make suggestions. Certainly we were influenced by what people were telling us by mail or by phone mm-hmm. as to what they wanted to see next. Who decided to do the great teams, you know, issue great teams? Oh, Dick did that. And I think he started that two or three years after he started the company. That was long before my time. We expanded them and, greatly, but 
but he had originals uh, for oh, 10 or 12 teams that uh, he started very early on. So he wrote all the descriptions then about those teams? Yes, yes. You know, that, because I think that that four-pager is one of the most interesting and fascinating uh, looks at baseball history. Um, you know, I yeah, think, I, I might you know, have I might have tried to uh, uh, modernize the language a little bit, uh, and the teams that we did later, I would have written the description. But originally, they were all his. Well, yeah, well not, I mean, people think they're easy to do it, but you know, I've done some for the great football volumes and in, in the great baseball volumes we offer now, and they're not nearly the quality of what you and Dick were were you know producing. Uh, as far as the write-ups of, of each of those teams. So yeah, my he, hat's he, off he, to you, sir. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, uh, and, and and you make a good point, too, John, about the uh, the information wasn't there back then. Here's I mean, another thing that I should have mentioned immediately. When you talk about Dick having done those in the early 1950s, those were teams that he knew very well as a fan. Mm. Now he may yeah. he needed to look up stats, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, as far as uh, having a, a feel for and a knowledge of those teams, he had it as as a young fan himself. Um, did, was there ever any thought about we get this all the time? Why don't you do minor league teams or Japanese league teams? Was there any thought that you know any conversation with you and Dick about that? No, no, not uh, no, not to any length. We didn't even get uh, we didn't even get many requests for that. So no, that never really surfaced. Okay, what's your favorite season that you produced? Uh, my favorite baseball season, uh, and also the most heartbreaking season is nineteen sixty four. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's, that, you that's and John a, that's will an, both be crying soon. <laughs> that's an honest answer. If you were asking uh, which season that I actually did was my favorite, um, I don't think I could answer that question. I, I, I wouldn't say I had a favorite. But my favorite yeah. baseball season as a fan is 1964. Yeah. yeah, a great season. And so far, Fritz, I'm bringing the Phillies home. They're doing good. They're still way ahead in the, in the National <laughs> League, but there's a long way to go. <laughs> well, they had, they had no business being there to begin with. Exactly. I agree. And they really, even in my replay, have no business being there. They have every right move that it, it, that, that any move that is made ended up, ends up being the right move. And uh, I think the biggest issue they're going to have down the stretch of my replay is availability of – the players, except for uh, Dick Allen and Johnny Callison, uh, a lot of guys had to take time off, and yeah. and, and some of the scrubs were going to have to get the job done. But I'll keep you posted, Fritz. I'll they both they both played 162, didn't they? They certainly did. Yeah, I think I think uh, I think uh, Callison played 161, uh, uh, but but Allen played 162. I he think. not only played, he started all 162. Oh I yeah, that. yeah. They were they were iron horses, and and that's what's really. And that, I mean, but that's the the keystone of that team. I mean, those are the guys that really got it done offensively. But, uh, but listen, guys, uh, let, let's let's break here. When we come back next time, we're gonna get up to 
1992 when, uh, uh, unfortunately, the passing of Dick Seitz, and then when Fritz takes over uh, as uh, the president of the game company. And a lot more to talk about the, the uh, incoming of the computer game. So uh, a lot of good things ahead of us. But uh, as always, want to thank both of you for being there. John is always busy. Uh, Fritz, I'm going to I'm going to tell you this and you may know, it, but when you call John, he's always busy, uh, usually proofing something. And that's why you're hearing all those pages turning. That's he's always at work. And, I will. I will. Sorry. I didn't realize you could hear them. <laughs> I didn't realize you could hear them. I'm sorry. I, I, you're I, all right. I well remember proofing and so would ski. <laughs> oh, yeah, it, I t- it is. I tell him all the time the the tedious no, uh, nature of that just gives me a headache thinking about it. But uh, but yeah, but it's it's uh, it, it, first of all, I, I'm impressed that you can, you know, think of questions, uh, talk and do that all at one time. But I, uh, I, I know well, I've you do written, it. John, I had written these all down just like you. I was prepared. <laughs> you are. You're well prepared. And Fritz, uh, I appreciate it because uh, you just had a wisdom tooth pull and you were able to come on here and do this podcast and uh uh, I can't thank you enough for that. Now go take some good pain medication to take a nap. No, it's fun. <laughs> it's always fun, and I look forward to the next one. Sorry I was premature with the uh, computers. Oh, no, 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 not no, at no, all. No, we'll no. get to that, though. We'll get to that. We'll Fritz, get to that, I really, I really appreciate that. I learned so much from you. Oh, uh, and oh I yeah. Really I'm just a fan of knowledge. The time. <laughs> 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 he, he, he's like the Dalai Lama. You know, we go there. Any question, Prince will answer it for you. <laughs> big big, uh, hitter, big hitter, the years. Lama. <laughs> yeah, big hitter, right. <laughs> uh, uh, Prince, while we got you here so I can get you publicly on record, will we see you in Alpharetta in June? Uh, what is the date? I just thought of this the other day. Is it June? It's not June 24th, is it? Uh, let's see. It's pretty close to when that is. Yeah, uh, I think. The, uh, yeah, the 24th is, uh, it's start, the banquet's the 23rd. That's what I was uh, afraid of. No, I, I will be in, in Los Angeles for a niece's wedding that entire weekend. Uh, so, how much so do you I will like your niece? To, I, <laughs> I do I do like my niece. <laughs> <laughs> well we may we may just I, I we may call you uh, uh, on a on a moment off and uh, get your get your impressions. That's fine. I'm sure I'm sure we can work that out at some time. I I, I will be gone that entire weekend. Uh, well that's uh, you guys you have fun. We'll 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 give you all the information about the uh, convention. Uh, if something goes that. wrong with the wedding, I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> My experience is when they go wrong, it's usually at the last minute, and there's a hell of a party afterwards because the father of the bride's already spent the money. I've had and it happen. The- I've had it happen in the catering business. I went, I I, yeah, I, I went to a party in New Jersey where the uh, – the bride or the groom had bailed at the last minute and the family uh, had paid for the place and paid for meals. Yeah. And uh, they, yeah. they invited a uh, hundred or so friends and we had a great party. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what else can you do? You know, I, I think they made it clear to their daughter that that was a one-time expense. And she <laughs> <Yeah. used it laughs> Next time go to Vegas on your own. <laughs> yeah. That's a, well, that's I hope a... we haven't jinxed your nieces. Uh, 
wedding. No, no, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure like you have it, and uh, and uh, uh, it, uh, no, I'm sure it'll be a nice week. But I, I, I'm sure I can make myself available for an hour or two somewhere along the line if we can work that out. All right, we'll we'll, we'll, hold we'll you take you up that. on that. All right, we will. We'll hey guys, thanks, thanks again, and uh, for all the listeners out there, hope you enjoyed the second installment of the history of Apple, according to. Fritz Light, and next time we'll get a little bit deeper into it. For John Herson and Fritz Light, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.